Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand. And today, we're joined by the founder and creative director of AG Jeans, Sam Koo. Sam, thanks for joining us. Douglas, thank you for having me. Uh, I would like to add that uh, my father and Adriano were the co-founders. Ah, yes. Well, let's get into that. Maybe let's start with that. So, Actually, a great place to start. Yeah, Yeah, founded 20 years ago um, in Los Angeles, yes? That's correct. So, you know, as many denim uh, brands before it, uh, founded in Los Angeles, was your father and Adriano Goldschmidt. And Adriano has a great legacy of, of denim design. He was one of the founders of Diesel. Um, you joined shortly thereafter. So maybe let's just get a little bit on Sam. I mean, joining the family business, at what age was that? And, you know, where did dad and Adriano start you? Yeah, so when I joined the business, it was the same season that they actually launched the AG brand. So the year prior, they had been working on the brand together, uh, you know, putting together the collection, all that kind of stuff. And they launched and the first season of shipping was the fall of 2001, which is coincidentally the same time I began uh, my time at the company as well. Wow, wow. So I guess, tell us what drove you to to join the family business did you have you know was that just in your blood as it is with many many of the great brands and many of the legacy brands um or were there things you had to do before joining uh there were certainly a a few other things that i uh kind of looked into during my college years to see if i liked um you know i did an internship in in finance and found that to be kind of not my thing um And towards the end of college, I kind of decided, you know what, Uh, going to work for Pops might be a cool idea. Uh, I always kind of was interested in the arts. I, as a kid, I actually wanted to be like a Nike sneaker designer or a car designer. So things that were like aesthetic were definitely uh, of interest to me. Got it. Well, so, I mean, 2001, you really did join just after the founding. And in the two decades since that, I mean, the brand has become much, much more than, than a denim brand. I mean, your knits are, are excellent. And as I look at the line, it is, it is really a, a pretty built out line. Um, is the future for the business to become a lifestyle brand? You, do you view yourself right now as a lifestyle brand as opposed to really just within that denim and, and somewhat leisurely slot? Uh, well, thank you for the compliments. Uh, we're definitely, you know, we're rooted in denim, and I think we always will be. Uh, we have put a lot of time and energy and effort into building up other categories. And uh, one thing that AG is known for is kind of owning that whole process. So we're fully, uh, we're fully vertical manufacturer. So meaning we take in the raw materials, and then we do the cutting, sewing, the washing, and the finishing all in our factory which is unique in our industry because most brands, they contract out all that work to different companies. Uh, We feel that owning that um, and knowing the manufacturing and also doing it all in one place gives us a huge advantage in terms of 
speed to market as well as quality. Um, and we are approaching our NITS business in the same way. Uh, so in the past few years, uh, the company's made a lot of um, huge investments in this kind of, in this knitting business. Uh, so what we're doing is we're importing yarns and then we purchased uh, machinery and um, we built a factory uh, within our factory, we built uh, the facilities to be able to, to knit, uh, piece dye, garment dye, and sew, um, cut and sew t-shirts. And um, we actually were there last week to go uh, check out, check up on some things. And uh, the, the factory is quite impressive. Uh, so we're really building this thing from the ground up. Another category that we're uh, going to be investing in or have been investing in and we're going to be launching soon is um, we've made a purchase of a number of uh, they're called Shimaseki whole garment sweater machines. So the cool thing about that is that it's a very, very uh, technologically advanced, I should say. Um, once a designer puts in a, a pattern and a design into this specific program, basically that, that machine without touching anything can spit out a uh, knit and spit out an entire sweater, uh, which is pretty cool. Like a human really never touches it. Uh, pretty incredible. So that we hope to um, have um, launching fall of 22. Wow. Well, the vertical integration is something that many, many brands aspire to. You know, I look at LVMH and Caring and what they're trying to do, and they do have some vertically integrated brands. And, you know, they're even going further up the chain to, to actual raw materials and, and trying to, you know, sort of control some of that. Um, but the other thing I'd love to talk about is sort of the supply chain issues that many brands have been dealing with for the last two years. Uh, how have those hit you since obviously controlling the means of your production, you're great on that, but mm -hmm. raw materials, has there been an issue there? And um, if so, what? I think every brand in our industry must be running into some level of, uh, of supply chain issues. Uh, there's definitely um, longer lead times for, for yarns and for dye stuff and all that stuff. So that means that our fabric vendors are gonna have longer lead times uh, meaning we're going to have longer lead times to order fabric. Um, the shipping lead times, uh, I'm sure you keep up on the news, but the ports are crazy. Uh, the cost of containers, the cost of the actual metal containers have gone crazy. Um, the cost of air freight for fabric is just insane now. Um, so those are definitely all things that we're dealing with. Fortunately, um, we do warehouse a number of months of supply within uh within our factory so it gives us a little bit of cushion to be able to say hey for that next season we better order a little bit early because we know the lead time's a little longer so that's kind of that's one of the main ways that we're dealing with um uh, those supply chain issues the other thing that relates to costs going up i think it's inevitable if you want to keep the same quality of product to your customer it's inevitable that the prices are going to go up hopefully the customers understand Hopefully the customer understands that inflation has been crazy as well. So that's also gonna play, play a factor. Um, just filled up my car with gas the other day and my corner gas stations charging $5.19 per gallon. And I was shocked when I looked at that number. So I think everyone understands that prices of things 
have certainly gone up and um, we'll see that in a lot of the uh, the fashion that we consume as well. Yeah. Well, the other advantage and you're, you're, you're noble not to mention it, but I think it is really very uh, important to a lot of consumers today, which is being able to accurately report on labor conditions and, you know, the actual production of your garments mm-hmm. is something that you're on top of because you're, you're not outsourcing it. So mm-hmm. maybe let's pivot a bit into um, what we both know, which is the, the, the incredible wastefulness of mm-hmm. the fashion industry, second only to oil and gas. And the figures that I have had thrown at me, and I'll just say, you know, they are, they are figures that, um, that I have not fact-checked, but uh, I've heard them over and over. Seven to 80 pounds of garments winding up in the planet for each consumer in the United States on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. So how, how is your brand addressing that? Because I know you are, uh, and I want to give you a platform to explain that. Um, and, you know, given that you have this great component of vertical integration, um, and that you are addressing the environmental issues, have you ever thought of B Corp certification? I realize that's two questions, so you can take it in two parts. Sure. Yeah. I'll tackle the first one. Yeah, definitely. Um, we all know that the apparel business is a, you know, quote unquote, dirty business. Um, it requires, it's a lot of resources that it requires to make, let's say a pair of jeans. Um, and we feel like it's our responsibility, uh, to produce them in the most sustainable way that we can. Uh, obviously price is a factor, so we have to consider that there's some things that might be really wonderful, but may just cost too much and the consumer won't pay for that, whatever that might be. Um, however, we do our part. We do, there's a lot of things that we do to try to make a positive impact on the environment. Um, I think the most important thing is like uh, seeing a consumer shift. You know, I think that the way that consumers um, make decisions to purchase, um, if those things shift, I think we can see some big changes happen. And what I mean by that, um, I think if everyone bought a little bit less quantity and bought higher quality and bought uh, bought from brands and companies that were more eco-friendly and more sustainably uh, sustainability focused, I think the world would be a better place. And uh, I know that sounds a little dramatic, but um, I think there are, there are a lot of things that we can all do to to do that. Be it you know, uh, bringing coffee in this thermos every day, or bringing my water in another thermos every day, like just little things like that. Um, you know, I. The interesting thing also is that I find that the items that I go to and I reach for my closet all the time, they're things that like I love because like the quality and the fit is right and like the styling is a little more timeless or classic and uh, I don't know, they just last a little longer in my closet, you know, and when you go for that trendy piece or maybe you bought something from fast fashion, uh, yeah, maybe you're happy in that moment, but how long did that garment really last you? And as you clean out your closet, you know, once every year or whatever it is, so often you're just throwing those pieces away. And so often, you know, those high quality ones from the brands that you love or from whatever it might be, you just hold on to it a little bit longer. Um, So I think if people had a little bit of a mind mindset shift, I think we could see a lot of positive change. Um, You know, it doesn't matter if companies are 
doing sustainable things if no one's buying those things, right? It has to work economically, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It has to I work in for-profit space. For sure. For sure. It does have to work. That's right. Um, uh, I will say, though, that for, you know, I've been in this industry for about 20 years, and finally, we've been talking about it for a long time, but finally, I feel like we're making um, big strides toward the, the entire industry becoming more sustainable or caring more. You know, before it was talked a lot about, but you wouldn't see a lot of action. You wouldn't see customers make purchases of those things that we would create. But today, God, people care more than ever. And it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, to the second part. So, so you do care. And we will talk about the gene of tomorrow, among other products that, uh, that you put out there. But what about the B Corp certification? It, it would seem that you are ticking a lot of the boxes there. Is that something that you've thought about? It is there. Gosh, there's so many certifications and there's so many things out there. When we look at a list, that's it's a little bit confusing on our end when you see so many classifications and certifications. Uh, obviously, the B Corp is one of, if not the most prestigious. And we've actually had some internal conversations to look into what that might mean. Um, but that's it so far. It's It's pretty preliminary. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you know of anyone that's made that shift, um, that that's had that experience, I'd love to talk to them. Uh, but it is something that did pique our interest. Um, and uh, to be honest, on the on the flip side, it's also a little scary. You know, um, certainly we feel like we do a lot to um, to do our part. Let's say, but there might be other things where it's like, I don't know. You know, to be honest, who who knows what's going to happen when we go down that road, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, well, it's you're right to point out that the um, there is we're, we're we're awash in certifications, right? And most consumers don't know what most of them mean, and some of them are industry certifications that really aren't very quote unquote clean or green. You know, it's just kind of this this greenwashing that is going on. You're also right to point out the B Corp certification, while not avowedly just green, it can be for a number of factors, um, but, but eco-consciousness certainly being one of them, um, is probably here in the US the most recognized as an independent nonprofit that certifies based on a number of parameters, which they pressure test. Um, but you're also right to be nervous and or scared or just, you know, it's rigorous. And that is why a lot of brands, particularly brands, I mean, your brand has been around 20 years. I mean, you can't just flip a switch and all of a sudden tick every single box that will make you B Corp certification. Um, I mean, it's a test where you have to get a certain score to even qualify. Yeah. And I suspect you would get it, but you may not, you know? And so really the first process is to, um, is to take that test. And I can put you in touch with some people and we can talk about it offline. Um, Fantastic. All you know, right. if you're further interested. But so so on that note, tell us specifically, I mean, you know, denim has been the core product of the brand, and you have developed a, a gene product that addresses this issue of wastefulness, and I think appropriately called it the gene of tomorrow. So tell us about it. Yeah. So the concept behind it was to create the most sustainable gene that we've ever done. And to us, that meant 100% biodegradability. 
And a lot of times people ask, well, if your genes are 100% cotton, won't they biodegrade? Uh, yes and no, because yes, the cotton part of the, uh, the denim, yes, that will biodegrade. However, there are many components to your, your genes that won't. So if you've got a button and a zipper or a button fly, all that metal um, does not biodegrade, right? There's, uh, there's polyester labels. Generally, there's polyester in the thread or it's a poly, poly, cotton, uh, poly cotton blend. Uh, let's say certain stretch components in genes also do not biodegrade. So there's tons of stuff there. Um, so what we did was we started with the fabric, we developed a fabric with cone mills. Um, the, the, the location of the fabric being produced was also very close to our Mexico facility. So, you know, reducing some carbon, carbon footprint there. The fabric was made of a blend of cotton, tencel, which is very eco-friendly and requires uh, 10 to 20 times less water than cotton, um, as well as hemp um, blended into the fabric. So it's a very, um, it's a wonderful fabric. It looks cool, but also very eco-friendly. Um, and then with the wash, um, we've done very simple washes and also we were using our most sustainable washes so that the least amount of water and chemicals were, were, um, were, were used for these washes. Uh, instead of uh, polyester labels, we decided to use a soy-based ink to denote the Gina Tomorrow in any branding. Um, and for the poly cotton thread that we usually use, instead we used a, I believe it's a rayon. Um, so it, it's a rayon thread that is uh, comes from um, uh, cellulose material as well. So that will biodegrade as well. The, the bamboo um, elements of, of rayon. I take it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that in, in some ways is a great education, I think, for many as to how many component parts go into a single garment, a garment as simple in, in some people's minds as a pair of jeans. Um, so expensive to do, undoubtedly. You know, what, what do the jeans retail for? Oh, uh, shoot. Uh, put me on the spot here. I think they're 198. I hope I'm okay. right. Okay, we will we'll back check. <laughs> uh, actually, I think I'm pretty certain they're 198. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think they're around that 200 mark. So how would you respond to the claims uh, that sustainable fashion is somewhat inherently elitist because not every person on the planet, despite their best intentions, can afford a $200 pair of jeans? I can understand why someone would, you know, come to the argument with that kind of point of view, but I do think that there are a lot of ways that we can dress more sustainably um, that don't cost you an arm and a leg. And, um, and this may, uh, may apply to the vast majority of Americans, let's say, and not 100%. Um, but I think there are a lot of brands out there that do care about uh, their their impact and that do um, provide fashion in a very meaningful way, but also in a sustainable way. Um, you know, the first company that comes to mind is Reformation. The prices are below contemporary prices. They're pretty reasonable. Um, mm -hmm. I think for some people it might be a little bit pricey, but I don't think that it's crazy. Um, and in addition, you know, the, as you know, the natural retail cycle, you sell a full price as much as you can. And at the end of the season, 
you got to put some stuff on sale, right? Can't you go to those brands that are more responsible and buy some of the sale items? Um, those are a couple ways. Another way that I think is extremely um, socially conscious and very sustainable is buying vintage. Um, I like vintage clothing. Um, these things already had a previous life. You know, there are already resources used to create that vintage t-shirt, let's say. And if you were to buy it and wash and continue to wear it and give it life, rather than buy a disposable one from one of these fast fashion companies, that also makes an impact. So, I mean, these are really like truly little ways that you can. And a great vintage t-shirt, you don't have to pay an arm and a leg for. There's many, many places where you buy vintage clothing for really cheap. And also, I think vintage clothing mixed with everything you've got is incredibly cool and stylish. So dual benefit. I'm with you 100% there. I think uh, to be stylish in on a budget is is doable and and really kind of escalates your style game when you can point to the fact there was very low <laughs> carbon footprint impact of what I'm wearing right now because mm -hmm. the t-shirt wasn't remade the jeans are jeans of tomorrow for instance and you know that you're putting those together in in a stylish and capable way uh, I think part of it is is lazy consumerism where and the power of marketing certainly we all understand that the fashion cycle is predicated on obsolescence you know four times a year and that is compelling to certain consumers and they want to be spoon-fed what it is that's in style so they'll see what comes down the runway and they'll wait for czar or h&m to within two days knock it off and have it at, uh, you know, 20% of the price or 10% of the price. Mm -hmm. um, I guess let's pivot a little bit back to the brand mm -hmm. and uh, your father co-founding with Adriano Goldschmidt. Yeah. So he, as we said, somewhat of a, a, a legend in denim. Um, how did you address the fact when he left the company uh, and you bought his stake out so that so that the company is completely family owned? Correct. Um, how did you address potential competition from him, use of his name, you know, things that might from a let's call it a Joseph Abood line case line um, potentially be impactful to AG? Yeah, it's certainly a uh tricky situation when a, uh, a designer uh, leaves his or her brand that's got her his or her namesake on it. Um, I think in our situation, um, it was just kind of the only the only option for the two individuals involved. Uh, you know, I think Adriano, his uh, kind of career MO has been to take on a lot of different projects. I think a lot of creative people love the challenge of something new, different, interesting, um, whatever it might be, right? And I think he felt like it was time for him to put his efforts into another project. Um, so that led my father to have the conversations of how we're going to buy him out. Um, and it was tricky because once he was bought out, uh, he did have a, a certain non-compete, which is typical in a, in a deal like this. Yep. Um, and uh, let's see. So the, the, the trademark, the actual trademark is AG Adriano Goldschmidt, which obviously has his, his first name and last name in it. 
um, he can go to the market and as himself be like, hey, I'm Adriano, I am launching this brand, I'm doing this and that. Uh, but he could not use his name in a trademark. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it was a little bit tricky for him too. Um, but I think both parties made it work. Um, for us, however, uh, when you have the namesake in a brand name, it's a little tricky because when you go to market, you still have people like that, like, let's say we go to a trading show and they're like, hey, is Adriano around? I'm a good friend. Hey, da, da, da. like, it's all like, I mean, we encounter that for years and years. It's okay. It's not a big deal, but we did have to let everybody know, hey, actually, this is what happened. Here's here's where Adriano is. He's doing this. And actually the, uh, the manufacturing company, Kuz Manufacturing, has taken over uh, the other half of the brand and, and owns it outright now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that part wasn't too challenging. I think there were, after Adriano's departure, there were a couple of design directors that were uh, hired that wanted to make their mark and kind of shifted the direction of the brand a little bit. And I think that's when maybe people, buyers, customers felt a little lost in terms of what we were doing at the time. Um, but when I came on board to be a little bit more involved in the product design development, um, what I wanted to do is bring it kind of back to the values and bring it back to the reasons why people already loved AG. Um, not to try to like leave my mark and be like, hey, this is, you know, here's my fingerprints on it. Like that wasn't what I was about. I wanted to bring it back to what people loved about the brand. Um, so that's kind of when we found our footing again and uh, went back to that growth, growth mode. Well, it's interesting you point that out because I think many great creative directors for houses that do not bear their name have that magic touch, whether it's Tom Ford at Gucci, Itziolo Zuccarelli at Calvin Klein, uh, you know, to, to come in and understand the house mm -hmm. and pull their own ego out of it and, mm -hmm. and design within that ethos. So you not coming from a traditional design background, how do you, how do you account for your ability to pretty savvily do that? Because you've been involved in design, you're being modest, but you've been involved in design for quite some time now. Yeah, I, up until that point for the first few years working here, um, I was just watching the process of how washes were done. I was watching the process of how jeans were sewn. And I think it just gave me kind of a good base, like a really good base of knowledge. I think it'd be a good designer or product developer, you really know, need to know how that cake is baked, right? Um, and that gives you the ability to say, okay, hey, I want my design to go here. Is this possible in production? You know, some designers don't consider that. It, it's important, you know, is it production friendly? Is it doable? And make sure that it's gonna not cost so much that we're gonna lose money on every piece we sell, right? Um, so I think, having that experience those first few years definitely helped me from a design standpoint. Um, I think as a designer, most designers that you know that have any level of success have an idea of where they want to go, have an idea of what they think that that customer wants, you know? And so a lot of it was just implementing those ideas within a system here, within the ecosystem that already had a lot of experts too, you know? Um, so, you know, just did my part and tried to try to direct 
you know, everyone from our design team to everyone making the product to, to make it the way that we think our customer love. Pretty well, sounds simple, but that's kind no, of- No, no, I mean, it does reason. sound simple, but um, as, as most know, I mean, creative directors and designers can be sometimes a bit precious with their, the infusion of themselves into design, which can make it difficult for a house to, to absorb that. Uh, and also no mindfulness with respect to production schedule, <laughs> right? <laughs> which can become that huge tension within, a, within a business. Yeah. Speaking of business, um, you know, let's talk about the retail side of it. So you obviously have a, a, a direct to consumer funnel through your website. You also have brick and mortar stores right. and you have uh, very meaningful wholesale account relationships. So within that holy trinity, um, where are you finding the right balance? It, it's probably not the balance that you had at inception in the early aughts. Where, where has it balanced now and, and do you see it changing in the future? Um, I, think, I think if you ask most brands that are a little bit more mature like AG, being around for 20 years, let's say, um, I think most of them would tell you, yes, they love their wholesale partners, but uh, the, the current um, area of business growth is definitely more their DTC channels, be it their own web store or be it uh, brick and mortar stores. Um, so certainly that would be the easiest place for growth. And I think a lot of brands, including our brand, we put a lot of effort into doing that. Um, that being said, I think it's important to have, I, I like how you called it the Holy Trinity because each one of those things are incredibly important, you know? Um, and you see it in other brands that try to launch DTC without other elements of it. It, it provides incredible challenges for them to grow a brand in a relatively profitable or, you know, um, in a meaningful way, right? Um, so, from the direction that we're going, I feel like, I think every brand would be smart to continue to have that conference, that one-on-one -on -one conversation with their customer. Um, so I think, um, I would say our e-com channel is the one that we see the most growth currently. Mm -hmm. And we continue to make efforts to to build into that or to, to support that. And uh, we wanna see, where that goes. Um, our retail stores that we operate, uh, they do very well. Also, um, we're not forgetting about them. We care about our customers that visit our brick and mortar stores. We don't plan to have a huge expansion there. Um, we operate approximately 20 stores in the US. Um, I think there are a handful of markets that we are considering moving into, but we're not looking to you know, be at 75, 80, 80 stores anytime soon. Um, we like um, having that kind of tighter distribution for our, our brick and mortar. Um, and Sam, and anything outside of the U.S. by way of stores, whether that's through a licensing relationship or or your own actual own brick and mortar? We had one for years in Tokyo that was operated by the Japanese distributor. Um, and since then, we've, uh, we've not moved forward with a distributor. We've gone forward with another one, and they have closed the store a couple of years ago. But that was the only one international store that we, we've had. Yeah. Well, on direct to consumer, I, you, 
the brand has the benefit of those two decades, the legacy of those two decades and the wholesale accounts, because what I hear more and more from, from startups is that, gosh, it was so easy in the 90s and the aughts when you had wholesale accounts that could kind of boost you into relevance. You know, you could be this designer out of Parsons or FIT, and there were a lot of them, and get an order from Saks and Nordstrom's and Barney's, and all of a sudden you were national, if not international, and you could get a factor to finance production and boom, you were from zero to 150 right mm -hmm. out of the gate. With yes. direct consumer, even though it would seem easier, right? Because you're direct to the consumer. <laughs> and yet there are so many SEO games to be played that make it absolutely not direct to consumer. Um, so do you, do you think it's, it's actually harder than ever for startup brands to, to gain relevance today? Uh, or do you think I'm a little off on that? I think that's 100% correct. It is way tougher today. It's infinitely tougher. Um, I feel like back then, when you're talking about you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, there was an easy, simple formula to, to growing a huge company. And it involved, I think, I don't know, five things, okay? So <laughs> here's what you need to do. You sell it to Barney's and Fred Siegel, right? You get it on Cameron Diaz, right? And she shot in People Magazine or Us Weekly or whatever tabloid, right? Uh, and then <laughs> and then maybe get a Vogue write-up, okay? Those three things, oh, dude, you're... And, and maybe spend way too much on a fashion show. Yeah. And have the right people there. But, right. you know, take that risk, because that was always a little bit the gamble. These brands would come out of the gate, and then they'd throw a big flashy fashion show because they knew Anna was going to come yeah. and Anna, you know, Anna will go anywhere for the right designer, but they always thought, well, Anna wants to come to, you know, if, if it's at Bryant park, I got to be in the tents at Bryant park. I can't mm -hmm. be on the lower East side. I can't be out in Brooklyn. Um, and so in some ways, you know, the fashion week uh, platform has gotten more democratic, but that was a small piece of, of, of your list of five, I think, in terms of actual cost. Yeah, well, what's interesting also is that the, those, those, those couple of things I mentioned, which one of them are relevant today? None of them really, yeah. right? Um, and so that was kind of the formula that like denim or contemporary brands could use back then. If you had, had those three things, oh, you're on your way, right? But now those things are practically irrelevant. And today there's no real formula. There's like a million, a billion different ways uh, brands are doing it. Um, and people think, oh, well, like you get to speak direct to your consumer. That's easy, right? Ooh, no, like, yeah. If you don't know, like the customer acquisition cost is insane, insane. Uh, for a DTC channel. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of screaming into the wind Mm. And, you know, the wind machines of the big players are blowing pretty hard. So if you're not spending, you're just, your message isn't getting out there. Uh, right. So let's, let's shift a bit. You are a West Coast guy, more specifically a SoCal guy, uh, as am I by birth. Um, 
you know, you got roots in Orange County, you got roots in LA, the brand is centered in LA. Mm -hmm. um, do you think AG Jeans, you know, is that an inspiration and a design inspiration? I mean, you seem to capture it in the marketing very, mm -hmm. very well. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that we consciously add that kind of little bit of that Southern California touch to it, um, you know. On the West Coast, we're definitely more laid back, not only in uh, mannerisms and the way we talk and the way we do business, but also in the way that we dress, you know? Um, so, you know, I think that LA is a perfect place for a brand like AG or a denim company or a casual clothing company to be based. Um, you see inspiration all around you. You see how people are wearing the product all around you. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And from a... Um, from a talent standpoint, there's a lot of talent in the LA area that we can draw from to, to, uh, to hire and to come work for us. Well, work from home used to be kind of a, a thing for independent contractors. Mm -hmm. uh, most office drones were kind of five days a week, at least in the office. And maybe one of those, they, they had a, a casual Friday that kind of morphed into casual all week. Um, but the increasing casualization of people's daily dress must have benefited a brand like yours. Uh, how, how are you seeing that evolve? Are people uh, issuing it now? I mean, are people feeling like I was too casual? I got to get out of my sweats and I got to dress up and have some lapels or is it uh, still going full throat? Well, during the pandemic, we did, we have launched a, a basic knits program called basic essentials and you know those are basically all the tees and all the best colors and all the knitwear and sweatshirts and pullovers and hoodies that kind of thing that you need sweatpants too uh and that's done incredibly well uh for us especially on our website um and uh, and as people spend more time at home you definitely want to be comfortable and let's say if you've got a work call or work interview like this um you could be wearing you know sweatpants right <laughs> so um, definitely, uh, the work from home situation, the way people purchase, I'm sure has shifted, uh, dollars a lot. Uh, but that being said, when we have meetings with vendors, um, I feel like everybody dresses kind of the same, um, same as pre pandemic, I would say, um, in terms of like the finance world, I'm not sure. You're right that that world continues to shift more and more casual. Um, and a lot of times you'll see bankers wear like our five pocket pants in a sateen fabric um, with a blazer and a, and a, and a, you know, and a great shirt. So um, even though you dress a little more casual, I think they could, those guys can still wear sharp, even if you work in finance or if you're an insurance broker or whatnot. Well, let me ask you, I mean, who are some of your personal style inspirations? And, and I'll refine it. I'll, I'll say, give me at least three. Ooh, okay. Uh, I like to look at the guys and girls that are just very classic in styling, but just know how to wear the product. You know, like um, I would say the first person that comes to mind is Paul Newman. I feel like Paul Newman, just whether he wore a tux to you know, Odo Ward's show or whatever, or whether he's wearing a sweatshirt with jeans. Like he just puts it together right. Just always looks right. 
Um, and also it, it helps that the guy was uh, incredibly handsome and, and raced cars and like had great taste. Uh, all that stuff helps. Um, but I think Paul Newman's one of the coolest, you know, style icons that's ever, you know, walked the planet Earth, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of ladies, you know, um, you know, everyone, everyone that works in denim or everyone that works in fashion always says Jane Birkin and they're right. She's always a perfect style icon. Um, kind of a different flavor, like Patti Smith in the eighties, let's say, like just so edgy and so cool, but like perfect, like just knew how to put it together. That, that perfect, I don't give a, you know, yeah yeah oh that's great now sam i love that you gave two women because Mm -hmm. you may be the first guest to have given the opposite sex um so i'll ask this question i mean we have seen um unisex fashion kind of move into much more prominence than than many thought possible Mm -hmm. um as you're designing and as you're marketing the, the brand, are there are there products that you feel appropriately are, hey, this is this is agnostic as to sex and therefore we'll market it as such. Um, and then do you think that's a growing that that unisex is is a space, or will people just appropriate what they want and they've got no problem going into the women's section or the men's section if that's not how they identify? Yeah, it's interesting uh, for apparently in our retail stores, there will be some women customers that buy some men's product. I don't think it's a large percentage, but you know, that, that woman is there, you know? Um, and typically those girls that can pull it off are the coolest, right? Um, we've done a couple items here and there that can be unisex, uh, but never really was a big thing for us. I feel like our, our woman, our typical AG woman is a little bit more on the feminine side. So it makes it harder to, to, to combine it and do some unisex products, but it's not something that I don't um, subscribe to. It's not something that I don't like. Um, actually, one of the coolest things uh, I've seen in retail. Uh, so my wife and I lived in Milan uh, for about a year in 2005. And at that time we would go to 10 Corso Como. Have you ever been? Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic place. Oh my God. That, that was my favorite store at the time. I haven't been in a few years, but, uh, love that store. And, uh, one day I walk in and at the time, my favorite brand and designer was Dior, Dior and which was designed by Hedy Slaman at the time. And at that time that he would dress some woman and these women would wear these sharp blazers and these cool, like just so good. Right. Um, and he's dressing, these, you know, Hollywood starlets in his men's clothing. It was amazing. And one day I walked into 10 Corso Como and in the women's section, sure enough, one rack of all Dior own where it's all the petite or the extra small sizes of the men's product were all on a rack there. And I was like, wow, that's just really cool. So the idea of unisex has definitely been around a long time. That was 16 years ago, gosh. Um, But definitely has gained a lot of traction today. I feel like today with the popularity of streetwear and the popularity of, you know, things being looser and baggier, it lends itself easier to unisex fashion, right? So like, you know, like uh, my daughter loves Billie Eilish, like 
the the sweatshirt Billie Eilish is wearing and the shorts she's wearing, like me, a guy could wear, you know? Mm -hmm. um, not all the time, but you know, like the image I have in my head, her in a kind of a bigger, cool sweatshirt and shorts or whatever, right? Um, but let's say once, if in one fashion shifts in another direction and incredibly feminine lacy things are in, you're maybe not gonna see that. So I don't know, I think right now it's a little bit more trend um, appropriate to see unisex dressing, but ultimately, you know, physiologically our bodies are different. If you're gonna wear something tighter that shows your body in a different way, it's gonna be a little harder to have unisex clothing. So I think that it's just gonna come and go like fashion always does. Yeah, yeah, I think also the, the industry has a, I mean, buyers buy for menswear and buyers buy for women's wear. And to my knowledge, there aren't any major retailers who have a unisex buyer designated. Correct. So that makes it a little difficult, just the, the whole infrastructure of the system. Um, and that might be, there may be some great commentary around that, you know, uh, just in terms of what it says about society. But um, let us, you know, you mentioned Milan. And, and our listeners always love lists. And I love lists of three because they're nice and tight. How about your favorite cities for style? I mean, Milan is, is a great one, but I'm not going to put that in your mouth. It may, it may be one of your answers. But what are your top three cities for um, uh, just personal style? Uh, okay. I would say Paris is probably number one, just because, you know, it's Paris. Uh, just something about the way French people, especially Parisian women dress. Uh, the, I don't know, There's it's something indescribable. There's some kind of, um, something about it that's indescribable, but that you're just like, oh my God, look at how these women dress and look how they present themselves. It's, it's that total cliche, like look like they're not trying, but perfectly put together. That's, they have that perfected. Um, so that would be one. Um, Let's see, uh, in terms of shopping, I love to go to Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo is one of the coolest cities in the world to go shopping. Just love what they do. I love seeing um, the way the Japanese um, recreate Americana. They recreate Americana better than we do in terms of the fashion. Uh, and it's like, it's a joke, it's crazy. Uh, and then when you look at the Japanese or the Tokyo vintage stores, the vintage that they have there. I mean, they just take all the best vintage we have here because <laughs> you see them, you yeah. see them all the time. They're buying, 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 and they bring them over there. And the way that they put their vintage stores together is incredible. Um, the third, I have to say New York, you know, like New York definitely is a little bit more, uh, New Yorkers leave the house caring uh, or, or let's say putting it all together a little bit more so than people on the West Coast over here. And um, you definitely see it. Like you, you, you definitely just walking down the street, you see it. Yeah, I see it. I mean, you know, when you walk down the street in a suit in Los Angeles, it's uh, it creates a stir. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a good thing. I think more, you know, it, men and women should should adopt that if that's what they want to do. Um, let's so. Let's let's talk a bit about influencers and their impact on mm -hmm. industry. Um, how did how does AG Jeans use influencers? Uh, where do do you see it as um, 
a constraint for the brand because yes, they have a built-in following, but you kind of have to adhere to, to somebody's own, you know, sort of version of themselves, or is it enabling because there are so many of them. If you're prepared to really look at somebody with maybe even 50,000 followers as an influencer, um, that you can really narrow your marketing in, in that regard. This is a very tri tricky topic because I think I think people either love or hate them. Um, whether you love or hate them, though, you it's it's undeniable that they are a important and influential part of like the fashion ecosystem, um, and uh, you know high end you know designer brands have have recognized that for a long time already. You know. You know, 20 years ago almost is when, you know, I think the first time I can remember that happening is, uh, I think her name is Tavi, Tavi Gavinson what, or whatnot. She had like a style blog when she was a young teenager, like 13 years old or whatever, uh, called Style Rookie, right? And Mark Jacobs plucked her from the middle Midwest or wherever she's from, I don't even know, I'm sorry, um, and brought her into Paris front row to see the Louis Vuitton runway show. And people were like, oh my God, that's like the first time I remember that kind of thing happening. I mean, obviously um, the influencer or the blogger culture turned into the influencer culture and you know it's shifted quite a bit, but there's no doubt that they, the influencer, oh gosh, the influencers have, have an impact. Um, I, I still think it's very early and I, it's kind of like the wild, wild west out there, you know, even influencers with small followings. If you're, if you want to work with me, you got to pay me $5,000 for a post. And you're like, what? You really, you really think you're worth $5,000 for, okay. You know, like that's what you think you're worth, but I don't think so. You know, like there's a lot of conversations that happen like this every second. Um, and I think that the honest truth is that there's a very small number of influencers that actually influence someone's purchase. That actually, when a consumer is flipping through and they see it, they're like, oh, I, I wanna buy that. I'm gonna look into that and I wanna buy it. There are so few that actually do that, you know? So most influencers that you pay 5,000 bucks, you would be lucky, lucky, lucky to get 5,000 sales from that post. So with a return of one, it's not a great business proposition, on the flip side, you can argue, hey, but you got all these people looking at it. You got people engaging and liking it. You've got the brand top of mind. So there's both ways of looking at it. I think there needs to be a correction in terms of what uh, influencers believe they're worth and what they're actually worth. Maybe. Uh, sorry, yeah. that's probably an un unpopular, unpopular. No, no, I don't think so. I, I hope not a lot of influencers are watching this. <laughs> Well, everybody, to some degree, is an influencer, I guess, would be uh, would be sort of the diplomatic way to put it. But relatedly, yeah. I guess, and also something that sounds new, but as you pointed out with influencers, really isn't that new, mm -hmm. which is brand collaborations. Yeah. What uh, what has AG done in that regard? And, and will you continue to do it? Are there collaborations that seem interesting to you, uh, mm -hmm. whether they're related, and I'm sorry for the sirens in the background, but that is New York, um, related or adjacent brands or things that are really seemingly off the grid? Yeah, I, you know, I love a good brand collaboration. 
um, the cool thing about collaborations is, is they can be anything, you know, they can be high, low, they can be two people or brands in totally different industries. They can be, I mean, you look at like, look at McDonald's collaborating with BTS, the Korean pop band, you know, like that's crazy, but like, it's fun. And it's, you know, something to talk about and makes news and makes noise and people go crazy over it. Right. Um, so I love a good collaboration. Um, AG, we've done a handful of collaborations in the past. Um, probably the most memorable, memorable one to most people would be the one that we did with Alexa Chung. Um, so we did two seasons um, collaboration of, gosh, I think it was 15 and 20, 20 pieces. Um, it was a huge smashing success. It was really exciting because it was also the first time we've ever done something where the day it went live, all the online retailers sold out of styles in minutes, you know, which is kind of like that, you know, it's that whole hype beast sneaker craze kind of like um, uh, drop that, that kind of feeling, you know, which, yeah. which was fun. And we had no, we had no idea that that would happen. Um, but that collaboration worked because it was, um, you could sense that it was Alexa's fingerprint on what we do well. Right. And I think that's what a cool collaboration is. Like you see it and instantly you go, oh, I get it. Like I could totally see this person's style that was adapted onto this item, you know, and I, I, that, that's what I like about a good collaboration. Um, we definitely have internal talks um, regarding what our next might be, but that landscape has changed so much. Like that Alexa collaboration was in 2015. And at this point, anybody who's anybody has everybody who's anybody has some sort of deal or some sort of line themselves or something going on and there's so much noise so it's it's, it's become infinitely more challenging to find that right partner but we are still uh looking for that um opportunity because it's a great way to create some buzz give people something to talk about and create product that's really cool and fun you know so Oh, we love them. Yeah. Well, listen, Sam, we are unfortunately out of time. Um, any any last words or shout outs, whether they're for nonprofits you're involved with or or that the brand is involved with? Gosh, uh, I would say no for shout outs. I think uh, it, hopefully anyone listening to this would kind of uh, recognize the importance of buying things that are quality that would last. Um, that's really it. Okay. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time, listeners. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye now. You've been listening to the laws of style with Douglas hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in, and stay stylish.